Hello, hello. Welcome to season three of SG Explained. We are back. Elliot, how are you? I am going to get married. <laughs> wow. What a great way to start the season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Rohit, how are you, Ben? You had a good break? Good, good. It's been a while. I've missed uh, chatting with you and I'm happy to be back in this uh, studio with you. Hey, let's, let's be very fair. We did meet up during this small break to kind of think about what we want to see for season three. And uh, I'm very excited to say that we have quite a lineup of things uh, in terms of content for the listeners out there this season. Oh yeah, we've got a lot of exciting stuff. We don't want to let too much out of the bag. But actually today's episode, we're already starting off with a bang. We've got a great guest uh, and we're actually going to be talking about something quite controversial. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so this episode is something which actually speaks a lot to my heart. You know, I, I realized I introduced a lot of episodes by saying it speaks a lot to my heart because generally that's where I get these topics from. Uh, and today we'll be talking about social media influencers. What better than to have an objective view, right, from someone who's actually been in the sector. Just introducing Althea Lim, CEO of Gush Cloud. Hi, guys. Welcome, Althea, welcome. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. Me and uh, me and Althea and Rofi, I guess we go way, way back. We should uh, admit up front that actually Althea is a good friend of both of us. It's really a privilege to have you on the show. Yeah, it's been a decade of friendship, I guess. Yes, it's, been a, it's been a good decade of friendship, actually. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> it's been a good yeah. What is Gush Club? Because I'm sure a lot of people may not know. Gush Club, we're an influencer marketing and talent agency group. Uh, we're spanned across 14 offices across 11 countries. Headquartered in Singapore, um, we've worked with I think the organization has worked with close to 30,000 influencers till date, out of which about an exclusive roster of um, just under 300. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, a pleasure coming onto the show. You know, I've known Elliot for a long time, known Rovic for a long time as well. Just happy to share my insights on this entire industry. I heard you guys now have an office all the way in uh, the United States. That's right. So we have uh, an operating office in Los Angeles. We work with some of the bigger names in Hollywood, help represent someone like a Naomi Campbell, uh, specifically what? into yeah, specifically into China. You have no idea how big a fan of Naomi Campbell I am. I'm sure everyone's kind of like a fan of us, right? This whole episode, we're going to try to understand the influencer scene a bit. It's such a big part of Singaporean social media life, but what actually is going on in it? What is the career prospects of it? What's the impact on our economy and our society? I think these are the kind of things that we want to pick up. It's really one of those episodes that we're doing where we're actually trying to create new knowledge as well, rather than to just pull out facts and talk about it. So I'm excited uh, in, in uncovering that. I thought we could start actually by using a definition. An influencer refers to an individual with the power to influence others. You used to have celebrities way back when doing like ad campaigns in newspapers or on TV. And that was also considered influencing. But what's really interesting is that the everyday person, people like you and me, can become an influencer to the point where I found this article online on Post that basically talks about four tiers of influencers. And I found it super interesting. So the four tiers are mega influencers, macro influencers, micro influencers, and nano influencers. No, I'm the last one, nano <laughs> I don't think so, right? So a mega influencer refers to a celebrity with a super high number of followers, great reach. And I think that's where we're looking at people like Naomi Campbell, right? Who, when you when you engage her, you're really trying to create brand awareness. You're really trying to reach as many people as possible. But maybe your engagement and your conversion isn't going to be high. The next level is your macro influencers. So these are people with 
30K and above followers and an engagement rate between 1% to 3%. So Elliot, how many followers do you have? Dude, I've dwindled all the way to 14.6K. <laughs> 14.6, you belong to the next level, which is called a micro-influencer. You're still bigger than a nano-influencer. And your engagement rate, actually. So this is what's interesting, right? A micro-influencer, while your reach is not as high, your engagement rate is actually much better because you have 3 to 5%. And in Singapore, the numbers basically indicate that micro-influencers, 58.2% of influencers are micro-influencers. So they dominate the local scene. And then finally, you have nano-influencers who are less than 5K. Their engagement rate is also higher, 7 to 10%. So there's this inverse relationship you see between reach, like total numbers, and an engagement. Don't put your own account down, man. I think it's an advertising term, right? Whereby you break it down into four levels and four layers. From the nano-influencer perspective, it's a lot of like peer-to-peer marketing. In the micros, it's in advertising, we say it's more performance marketing. Macros have a balance of both awareness and performance marketing. But typically for the magas, it's mainly for awareness and trust certifications. So it's like you're talking about like endorsement and type type things at the at the mega level as well. Even with a big name like I don't know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson on on there, and you're like, okay, so this guy is now endorsing said product. It's all about putting the word out there. So that's giving all the audiences kind of like a trust certification because people genuinely believe that when you are kind of like at the peak of your fame or at the peak of your influence, you tend to choose the brands that you want to work with and preferably, and most of the times you notice that the mega influencers are very picky about the brands that they work with. When The Rock endorses Under Armour, brands like that must be the performance like a uh, fitness wear of choice, right? That's right. Absolutely right. As influencer myself, I do not know these things and that's a problem. Well, now you can go around saying that you're a proud micro-influencer. Absolutely not happening. Say, hey, I'm micro, dude. I think one thing that's implicit in this and maybe we should call it out is that when we talk about influencers, normally we're talking about it within an advertising frame of mind, right? Because while... These people may be genuine human beings. A lot of times what they're posting is with a brand and advertising angle. And we'll talk a bit later about maybe even a social impact or advocacy angle as well. But it's these these people are kind of just become brands of them of their own. You know, now that we have categories, there must be an origin source somewhere. You know, and as they say, if there is demand, there will be supply. So look, thinking back, this isn't a very old industry. I don't imagine. I don't even remember this term ten years back when I was in junior college. Does anyone here? know like what you know what gap these influences filled for us as a society i think this whole thing really started with the emergence of this platform called blogger so back then in the past in 2005 and 2006 you had a whole emergence of a lot of young people um, that started writing articles and they started writing it on this platform called blogger and so what happens is that they started blogging And they became kind of like people that people would read for reviews or for opinions. And back then in 2005, there was this entire term, which is blogger marketing and blogger management. So you had a lot of like agencies at that point in time that came up to like represent some of these talents who were fundamentally bloggers. I think what fundamentally changed then would be the emergence of what we call social media platforms like Facebook, but before Facebook, it was actually Friendster and MySpace. So back then, people would be loading up music that they would love, or they would be becoming musicians in their own right, or they would be using Friendster to kind of like promote a party that they're going to, etc. 
But then I think really when Facebook started um, kind of like emerging and people started following each other, then you started realizing that, oh, some people had 30 people following them. But then you also noticed that some people had 30,000 people following them. And I think what happened then was that when they started putting the celebrities on board, and then you see millions of people started following them. And that was the emergence of the fan pages. And then YouTube then kind of like came out that supported content creators and Facebook then had, you know, with the acquisition of Instagram, pumped in a lot more, I guess, resources into Instagram. And Instagram then grew an entire category of back then in the past, we would call them like Insta models. But today, you know, all of them are known as influencers. So it was really the emergence of kind of like all these social media platforms that really pushed forward individuals who actually could now have a talent. So you notice that on Instagram, it was typically the ones who could take photos better than the rest, the ones who understood photography, who understood um, you know, how to use a camera better than the rest, who understood how to pose in front of a camera, whereby now they didn't have to walk down the catwalk, but they, because, because they were more fashionable, they knew how to walk the camera, that people aspired to be like them. And that was how the fashion category just naturally grew on its own. But I think an important point to think about is that before this entire thing happened, at no point in time did a celebrity before social media occur ever owned their own channel. So if you if if we go back to a Dwayne Johnson kind of like to use him as an example, before social media, he could never have had his own cinema theater, right? To screen his own movies. But because of the emergence of social media platforms, now influencers then become the first to ever own a publishing channel, which means now you, you, you kind of like actually have a whole group of people that other people idolize, follow, and they actually have their own publishing channels that they control. Yeah, that's interesting because on one hand, what you're saying is it's not just about them building a platform, um, you know, or building a career out of this, but now they actually have an advantage, right? Their own audience. This is this is a a thing in which no one else can own. For Dwayne The Rock Johnson, suddenly the people who are following him are part of his audience scope and who else can touch that scope easily? You know, that is a way of identification. That is a way of marketing push as well because now The Rock and say, well, these people follow me for a reason. That's right. That's right. Elliot, why do people follow you? I think people follow me because I, I do a lot of dumb things. I mean, this is a scientific answer, by the way. <laughs> You're not a pro photographer like what Althea said. This is cool because people can now see themselves as brands as well. And that's what I kind of like see myself as sometimes, right? Not all the time, but I know that my brand is goofy. My brand is is funny. It's, it's nothing about wearing hype beast clothes. Like I don't have a Balenciaga cap, uh, but you know, it's about, it's really about people watching me so they can smile or laugh and then something stupid comes out of it. A good example of that would be like an Uber, right? Or like a Grab, whereby, you know, they could be the largest employer of drivers. And so from that perspective, how YouTube or Instagram or even Facebook thinks about, how can I be the biggest employer of influencers? How can I be the biggest employer of content creators. And that's how, for example, like YouTubers make money from streams, from the AdSense model, right? And so from that perspective, that's a natural income, that's a consistent income that comes in, that keeps getting them to like produce content. But once that happens, then the platforms come in and say, 
oh, I want to win in a specific category. So if we go back to the example of Elliot, he started out in comedy and really which platform really pushed literally the whole category of comedy and humor. And it was actually YouTube. Yep, so back right. then in the past, when we looked at Elliot or when we would book him, we would explain that Elliot from Three Potatoes is a professional YouTuber. You used a very key word, which is employee. And actually a lot of these platforms run away from the word employee because that uh, sets up certain obligations in terms of employer-employee relationship. Mm-hmm. Actually, what a lot of these platforms benefit from is the fact that a lot of these content creators are not employees. In fact, they're part of the ecosystem. They contribute value without actually requiring too much from the company itself in terms of benefits or like. And I think that's an important distinction because when we talk about the gig economy, we did a whole episode about this and I highly recommend all listeners to check it out if you haven't already done so. The key thing about a lot of these influencers is that they are freelancers for the most part, right? When they work with GushCloud as well or any other influencer marketing company, it's almost always on a contractual basis. That's right. We've always done it on a contractual basis. Some of them are exclusives. Um, A lot of those that we work with are non-exclusive. So when it becomes a non-exclusive agreement, it becomes kind of like a project-based agreement. Sometimes influencers can be rather niche, right? Even for like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he is a mega influencer, but there are certain attributes and certain qualities that we would say he owns or like he represents stronger than others. Like I wouldn't go to him for baking advice. You have to work with an array of influencers on the platform because just everyone owns a different niche. No matter how big you are, there are niche things that you are going to perform better. The idea of an influencer is one who is actually very true to their audience. Like people can sniff like BS a mile away. You just want to have as genuine and on brand a message as possible. I think the difference from back in the days where people kind of like follow actors and actresses, they know they're following a character and they know that these people are employed or like have been hired to act out the character, right? But I think the very big difference between like specifically like YouTube and Instagram, and I bring out these two platforms, is because YouTube was powering what we call vlogging, which is daily video logging. And so what that means is that you're not really acting. You're kind of like giving kind of like a reality TV show of yourself on a platform called YouTube. And that's why you can't really run away from pretending to be somebody else so much. And when Instagram first started, it was kind of like a photo diary of who you are as a person. So it would be very difficult if I were a brand like Balenciaga and I had to invite people who were too comedic and not really fashionable, whereas I wanted the fashionable people to come to my show. So not Elliot. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> if you listening to this Balenciaga, I don't even want you, okay? Just <laughs> what I really am hearing is that a good influencer actually has to take a lot of care, not only over the individual content pieces that they create, but their overall brand, their channels. And that's a lot of work. Uh, But, you know, in Singapore, especially, I feel like influencers kind of have a mixed record, right? So on one hand, you have people who do follow and respect a lot of the views. On the other hand, you have level of uh, skepticism or disdain, the suspicion that, you know, are these people fake or are they just trying to, to earn sponsorships at my expense? That really brings us to the misconceptions of influencers. In fact, uh, a very Singaporean term, because we this is SG Explained, is uh, the moniker influenza, right? So mm. <laughs> it's, it's basically a play on the words influencer and the flu influenza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about like the misconceptions of influencing as well, because it's just from a personal perspective. Lah. But a lot of people have 
these ideas of what I do as a full-time job back, back in the day, obviously. And I had to dispel a lot of myths. One of them was, uh, and this is a true story, okay? Once I was riding a bus and this kid came up to me and I was like, whoa, he was really shocked that, um, that I was riding the bus. So he started talking to me, he's like, hey, why are you on the bus? And I thought this was like, uh, you know, it's a standard question. So I said, oh, because I'm going to Badol as I usually take this bus. And he's like, no, no, no. As in like, I didn't know that YouTubers rode the bus. I said, what? He said, yeah, I thought you guys earn a, a, a lot of money. This was at the peak when uh, Tianhao had announced that he was a millionaire or something like that. Right. Uh, I was like, I don't think you understand how much I earn on YouTube, dude. I earned chicken rice money uh, back in the day. And he was like, whoa. And he was really mind blown. When it comes from a client perspective, what are some of these misconceptions that people have about influencers and influencer marketing? So I think, first of all, it's, um, it's what we call a 2080 market. I mean, in business, there's always the 2080 rule as well, right? So in business, um, the 2080 rule means that the 20% of things that you do will probably make 80% of the entire market that you have. So in entertainment, we have what we call the 2080 rule as well, which means that the top 20% of the entire industry makes 80% of the revenue or 80% of the income. And so for Jianhao to be a millionaire, it would mean that eight other people are very far away from becoming a millionaire from that perspective. The misconception is that every celebrity, um, everything that you see on the screen, everyone that you see should be wealthy, should be, um, should be driving a nice car, should be staying in a big house. But the very unfortunate truth is that 80 to 90% of the influencers that you see on your screen that you love don't ever attain to such um, income levels. And I think that that is what we call phase one of, I guess, the entire YouTube, Instagram, social generation, right? That started from kind of like 2010 to 2020. Now, I think from 2021 to like, even like 2030 onwards, there's going to be kind of like other platforms that are coming out that would give more opportunities for other people to kind of like come onto these platforms and they could start as micros, but they could be megas on these new platforms. And a very simple example would be TikTok. The very big challenge that like even on my side or what TikTok would probably have is that what does a professional TikToker look like in 10 years time? Someone who can do renegade. Hey, even I know renegade is like an old fan, bro. Can you get a new TikToker? Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we take a look at like other platforms like Spotify and how they just did that like multi-million dollar deal with Joe Rogan for his podcast. And so you see a whole new generation of podcasters coming out and they're not typically the ones that you see on, for example, on Instagram or on YouTube. So it's a whole new bunch of people that are now just given an opportunity to be on another platform from that perspective and be able to become megas in their own rights. And we're going to see a lot of these coming out and hopefully the, the entire industry will make enough income such that the income will be decent. Kids have come up to me and, and teenagers are like, so 14, 15 year old um, teenagers, they come up to me and saying like, hey, Elliot, I want to be an influencer like you just when I grow up. And I say, don't be like me, be like some other person, you know, like some other influencer. Being like me is, is not fantastic. Is, is this something which they, you think currently people can aspire to? And maybe influencer is too broad a term. I heard you say content creator. I've heard other terms like key opinion leaders. What do you actually need 
to do or have in order to be a good influencer? The scary thing, but the exciting thing right now, it's kind of like a roller coaster, right? Is the fact that you have 60% of kids under the age of 12 in very prominent countries like the US, Korea, or even Singapore, who have come out to write that their aspiration in life is to be a professional YouTuber, is to be a professional gamer, is to be a professional, for example, influencer. And the key thing is why, right? And so the scary thing is that can the industry actually hold on to um, bringing more of these people into the game? The answer is yes. But whether or not you can earn that kind of dollars is really dependent on what would make a content creator kind of like great. So if you think about it logically, what makes a content creator or KOL or an influencer a lot more income than the rest? I think number one, it's talent. So it really goes back to traditional entertainment from that perspective, which is you need to have a talent. You need to be funny. You need to be able to tell a joke. You need to be able to act out certain characters. You need to be able to take photos. And all these are hard skills. And so once we can dovetail into the fact that this can be a talent-driven industry, it then means that we can actually teach these hard skills. Number two, with that talent, it's consistency. So you can't, like, like on a platform like YouTube, if you look at the ones who do really well, they're extremely consistent and they're very diligent. A very good example would be, for example, the Logan and Jake Paul brothers. They're very consistent with their content, daily content that's churning out. And so audiences like that and audiences feel for them. A very good example is David Dobrik and like his vlog team and his vlog crew. And so what happens is that like every day you see content that's churning out for that. It almost becomes like a job that you turn up for work, you film and then you exit and then it goes up, right? And the next day it happens over and over again. And then you get a holiday, you got to apply for leave and all that. So that's consistency. Now with consistency, then it goes into the third point, which is specifically understanding your audience and giving your audience and just doubling down on your audience because your audience is going to be the ones talking for you and gathering your fan base for you. So I feel like anyone can be an influencer today. Like I could be one, Rovic could be one, our parents could even be one. But I think what really marks a good influencer to a great influencer is that they need to have talent first. They need to be diligent at their work. They need to uphold high standards of work ethics. They also need to understand their audience and bring them in. And after that, they need to create brands of their own. These are all hard skills, which if you think about it, those jobs already exist in the in like you know mainstream markets talk about filming you talk about modeling these are traditional jobs but with the rise of social media platforms people can carve out instead of going through a whole corporate system right like you might climb up an existing already monolithic sort of space like fashion for example you could essentially carve out your own destiny is what you're saying and now is a good time for us to take a break If you already haven't subscribed to SG Explained on your preferred podcasting platform, do so right now as we have an exciting season up ahead and we want to make sure that you get these episodes firsthand. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and almost every other podcast platform, so there's no reason to miss out. Now, let's go back to the episode.
on this topic of viability, right? I was very curious on actually how much you can earn as an influencer. The research online, it shows, you know, for, for example, a YouTube video, if you have around 500,000 subscribers and up, you could go anywhere between a thousand to five thousand dollars per video. And for an Instagram post, 500k followers and up, you could go three thousand dollars for a single post. That's mm-hmm. a lot of money. One aspect that's also thought about when people think of influencers is sponsorships. So you get a lot of free stuff, a lot of goodies. And I also found out in my research, I'm not sure if you know this, Elliot, but actually, if you get anything worth more than a hundred dollars, so if you get anything sponsored that is valued at a hundred dollars, so let's say if you go for a fine dining meal, that's worth more than $100, you have to pay taxes on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I learned it the hard way. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> in terms of the dollar amount out there, like for someone who's maybe starting off in content creation all the way up to maybe your top tier and within a, maybe a Singapore context, what's the income range that someone can expect? If you're just starting out, I think you have to expect $0. I think being an influencer today is being an entrepreneur. Mm. You're creating your own destiny you're building your own brand, right? And that's fundamentally what entrepreneurs do. And then after that, you've got to build your own teams and provide more jobs, right? When an entrepreneur first starts out on his own idea, he makes no money. So if you want to be an influencer today and you want to start out with zero, you're going to be expecting to probably eat and live air and water for at least a period of time. It's all that sweat equity. It's all that sweat equity, but you are 100% owner of your own brand. And that's the exciting part, right? But I think once you start to scale, you will be able to see the incomes come in probably $1,000 a month first after maybe the first six months. And then if you keep going at it and keep improving, you will go from 1000 to maybe 3000 And that is where a lot of influencers go, okay, this could be actually sustainable. I just probably want to like double down on that a lot more. But unfortunately, we see that from 3,000 income to 10,000 income is usually where it becomes a bit strenuous, becomes a bit difficult. They don't really know how to get there. And that's why we think that 3,000 is typically the ones who are like micro level. And then they would strive to go to like the 10,000 per month, right? 10,000 or $20,000 a month kind of like range that would be a little bit more macro. I think honestly, in Singapore, as an influencer, I I, I can count, you know, more than my 10 fingers that there are influencers who make close to a million a year. A million a year? Okay, well, I'm not in that 10, that's for sure. Uh, And that's fine. And that's fine. I think one of the things which I wanted to bring up here in this episode, uh, which I didn't really get to talk about, is the fact that a lot of these influencers, they're not just making money off one platform, actually, right? We've we've seen a lot of influencers, like close friends of mine, like uh, Nicole Changmin, for example, right? She, yes, she has an Instagram following, but she also does YouTube. She also does TikTok. She does an array of platforms that allow her brand to kind of like shine. Most of these people, like even Andrea Chong, right? She is big on Instagram, but she, you end up seeing her on like regular advertising, like mainstream advertising. She's endorsing brands. She's in on the storefront. She's an entrepreneur as well. She's an That's entrepreneur. Right. Exactly, exactly. So it being an influencer is like, I think Althea is hitting the nail right on the head here. It's that these people, they're all just business, just business folk. They're finding new 
this image to extend themselves instead of saying like, hey, I represent this company. It's like, I'm representing my brand. My face is my brand. And I think what's important is that conversely, if they see themselves just as someone who takes photos or gets free sponsorships, which is a lot of the criticism of influencers that don't get it right, then you will never be able to grow. You'll never be able to build an actual community around your brand. And and that's probably where a lot of influencers fail as well. With this, you know, uh, talking a little bit about, you know, where these influencers fail, I, I actually want to talk, talk a little bit about responsibilities because this is, this is a hot, hot, hot button topic here in Singapore. I see on, you know, Facebook comments, uh, for example, let's say during the latest Dekosh scandal, we saw that people were really, really looking towards D as like a moral compass. This is something which I don't think, even like Jake Paul, uh, during, you know, he also have, has some scandals in his life. They can hit mainstream media because of the of the amount of influence they have on younger demographics, younger audiences, uh, do we see this as a shift of responsibilities? Like, do you think uh, influencers have reached that that stage where their opinion on personal things like politics, on current affairs and stuff? Is that something which you think has, is growing, Althea? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. And I think that, that 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 hasn't changed with time. You know, back then in the past, you know, if you look at American politics, you would have celebrities standing up for which party that they like, right? And then they will go on, like, the party tours with, like, the... The, the incoming, for example, like, like either with the Democratic Party or with the Republican, for, for, for that matter. I mean, beyond that, in countries like, for example, even Taiwan has that, you, you know, because they have such a huge, like, celebrity presence. I think what we need to understand is that um, influencers, the moment you, content, you, you, you create a piece of content on any social media platform, you're not part of an advertising industry. You're part of the entertainment industry. And the entertainment industry comes with a whole lot of responsibilities that we all have to abide to. And so today, even at Gush Cloud, you know, when, 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 when new colleagues come on board, we tell them we're not part of just the advertising industry. We're not just part of being in a marketing industry. We're part of the greater entertainment industry. And what that means is that everything that we do or say, we have to uphold to that kind of like standards, which means that we have to spread hope, we have to spread love, we have to spread freedom, we have to be responsible with what we say, we have to think it through, and we have to do all of that. We have to have an opinion, and that is important. That opinion doesn't have to be right or wrong, but we need to have an opinion because people are looking up towards entertainers for an opinion. And that is why they will watch the Jimmy Fallon show. And, and, and that would be why they would watch vlogs and commentaries. That's why they listen to podcasts because they want to be educated so that they can then form an opinion of their own as well. But I think what is absolutely important is that we always need to give both sides of the story. And that is what I think, you know, really the next stage of Singapore would be while we get into this course of like specifically what kind of topics, I think it's most importantly to never spread hate and to really spread positivity and to also know the responsibility that if you have a hundred thousand young people watching you, listening to you, to be very careful about what you teach them. And I always say this, right? 
to the influencers that we work with or the content creators that we work with. Let's say things that we would allow our children to listen to. So we repeat that statement again, right? Let's only do things that we will allow our children to listen to. Or let's do things that we would allow that, that, that our children can be proud of us. Now, if we did something and if we said something against someone in public today, are we okay for our children to, to, to follow in our footsteps? And if the answer is no, then why are we doing it? I've always seen myself as partially in advertising and partially in entertainment. But once we reframe it as you're like, hey, look, the entertainment industry is a place where people are looking at, there's a lot of spotlight that's just like you shine on that sector. It makes you feel as though there is a sense of uh, education that is on the line, right? The kind of social sentiment, what is popular opinion becomes very uh, critical. And where we stand as individuals becomes like the main point of contention. A fundamental feature of influence is aspirational, right? So when people are posting content or talking about their lives, young people or just followers in general are looking at it in an aspirational way. They're seeing it as values or, or attributes that they want to emulate. And so if, if they don't recognize their responsibility, then that's where a lot of the potential harm in society can happen. So I appreciate that a lot. I think it's super important that as more and more people can become influencers, that they recognize that that responsibility comes with it. And I think in Singapore in particular, to give young people so much responsibility is a new thing because I think about the celebrities that used to be on the TV screen, your channel five, channel eight, way back when. And these were, you know, middle aged, like older folks who probably have some level of maturity, right? But now when young people are the ones that are influencing even younger folks in school, what's the expectation for them <laughs> to this all of a sudden have a moral responsibility or have some maturity over these topics? They have to grow up really fast. Singapore will mature. We hope to take conversations in a healthy state, whereby if an influencer were to make a particular statement and other influencers are not comfortable with that, they need to self-correct themselves. And audiences need to not see that as kind of like a popcorn session you know, whereby you see two people going against each other. But I think audiences need to want to take those sessions beyond just making statements like, oh, popcorn time, you know, I would appreciate it a little bit more if we can if we can slowly teach the audiences to have more of an opinion because it would be opinions that make us who we are. Gosh, Cloud actually went through the effort to publish a white paper on its website about the impact of COVID-19 on the influencer sector. And I thought a lot of it was pretty intuitive, but still good to, to have the data on, right? So for example, it talked about how influencers are learning how, how to use a wider variety of digital tools and not only that, but also how to have different modalities of content creation. So it's not just posting something on Instagram, but it's also about doing live streaming and live content or about catching on to trends much faster on TikTok. Uh, and so that's that's kind of talking about having to really develop a much stronger digital angle for, for a lot of content creators. What do you think is the future of the influencer sector after COVID-19? So this might be a bit heavy, but I would like to say that what COVID-19 has done is to put meritocracy back in place. Interesting thing. Yeah. In the past, you know, when an influencer has gotten to a particular height, like more than 500,000 followers, he or she will be making a certain amount of income that would allow he or she to be able to travel. And, you know, everybody loves travel content and everybody loves 
watching landscapes, beautiful like seas and, 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 and stuff like that because they're very aspirational. But because of COVID-19, we're not allowed to travel. And so I feel like it has created a little bit more of an even playing field and an even playing ground for a lot of the influencers. So you see a lot of like the smaller ones becoming more aggressive and going, oh, how do I take advantage of like, you know, this even playing ground and try on new initiatives like live commerce, live streaming, podcasting, et cetera, et cetera. And then you see a lot of the bigger ones stressing out and go like, oh my God, how am I going to like pivot in time? But I think it's all good because I think what's going to happen is that you're going to see really a new bunch of people growing from various platforms. And I think if you're listening here and maybe you're someone younger wanting to come and, and, and play in this industry, then what I want to say is that take advantage of COVID-19 and the parameters that it has given us. No travel, not really socializing, no big parties. And see what you can do with that, because that really has evened out a playing field for everyone. So if anything else, and, and, and this was an exercise I was doing within the organization, because, you know, the word resilience has been thrown around, right, everywhere. As influencers, you then build kind of like resilience into your audiences. I think coming out of COVID-19, I think the influencer space in Singapore is going to grow even more. I am seeing a lot more interesting uh, personalities. So I personally want to give a shout out to to a YouTuber. I've not met him. I've not emailed him, but his name is Sneaky Sushi, and I and I really like his content. So I personally want to give a shout out. I think um I think we hope to see a lot of these kind of like young people coming up with more opinions, with more thoughts, with more balanced opinions. Sometimes pushing the envelope is okay, and we should always continue to push the envelope. From that standpoint, we start to see a lot more of like influencers, like even Jamie Chua, who we work with very closely together, you know, exploring gardening and like really, you know, her next bout of content is to possibly even teach women how to garden. And I think that's an excellent thing to do. And we start to see a lot of these um, more interesting content coming through and not just, for example, beauty or even like, for example, just fashion anymore. We want to, I, I think after COVID, there'll be more spotlights that will be given to like, for example, the, the wellness folks. I think that's an important topic. Um, I also think that after COVID-19, there'll be a lot more social initiatives. Even for myself um, at Gush Cloud, we're also going to kickstart kind of like a mental wellness initiative. We're working with a couple of like influencers on that front. Very excited to roll it out to most importantly, teach corporates to not have a stigma towards mental wellness. Yeah, well, actually, we're doing a mental health episode next week. And that's uh, we're trying to do it in line for World Mental Health Day on October 10th. That's great. I love that because it's really, it's not just a, a content category, but it's an important focus area. Yes. Is there anything, you know, people want to hit you up or you want people to know about things? Is there something you want to let the audiences uh, have a go at? I think if you're an influencer listening in here, if you're a young person wanting to be an influencer, if you're somebody from the ad agency, uh, if you're someone from the entertainment industry as well, uh, just know that we all coexist in the same place and we should strive to take care of each other, partner up with each other a lot more, uh, spread love, uh, spread positivity, spread freedom, spread hope especially in times like that. Um, I just want to say thank you, Rovic. You know, thank you for being a friend across all these years. Thank you for remembering um, myself and even Gashkot and just bringing us on the show. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Elliot. You know, I hope you have an awesome 
wedding, awesome married life. Hey, thank you so much, Althea. It was really great hearing from you again, and you know, having you on the show. This was very insightful, Rovik. Like for sure, one of the one of the few times that we've managed to mine out a lot more information in a in a category that we're just you know there isn't that much uh, literature. Sixty one point nine percent of marketers in Singapore work with influencers, and this is a sector that's only going to keep growing. And this, we hope this episode really helps to punctuate some of these uh, developments. Uh, Althea, you've been absolutely insightful and amazing. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Thank you. 